This is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land. Last week, at the International Court of Justice, South Africa began to make the case that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. Israel rejects this, saying South Africa is presenting a profoundly distorted view of the hostilities. Israel also says it has the right to defend itself against Hamas after the attacks on October 7. In this episode from our global news podcast Today in Focus, Guardian US writer Chris McGreal, who's previously worked as a correspondent in Johannesburg and Jerusalem, explains both countries' arguments and the impact this case could have on the ongoing war. Here's host Michael Safi. About 100 days since Hamas overran Israeli military bases and massacred hundreds of Israeli civilians, with northern Gaza bombed to ruins, tens of thousands of Palestinians killed by Israel, and millions more struggling to find food, water, housing, shelter. A few days ago, in a wood-panelled courtroom in the Dutch city The Hague, men and women in robes and wigs argued over whether what's happening in Gaza is the deliberate destruction of a people, is genocide. The court meets today and will meet tomorrow under Article 74, Paragraph 3 of the Rules of Court to hear the oral observations of the parties on the request for the indication of provisional measures submitted by the Republic of South Africa in the case concerning application of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in the Gaza Strip, South Africa versus Israel. The accuser was South Africa, a state that emerged just decades ago from a suffocating regime of apartheid. The accused, Israel, a nation established in the wake of the most notorious genocide in history. But just as heavy in that courtroom as the past was the symbolism of the present, a major African power holding to account one of the West's closest allies, saying the law and human rights and international justice it applies to you too. The case itself at the International Court of Justice will probably take years, but an order by the court that Israel must cease its military campaign in Gaza immediately could be just weeks away. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, will Israel be charged with genocide? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Chris McGreal, you write for Guardian US, and in your career as a foreign correspondent, you've reported from South Africa, from Israel, and from the occupied Palestinian territories. You were following hearings in this case really closely. How did lawyers for South Africa begin to lay out their argument? 
the court heard from uh, several lawyers on behalf of South Africa. The first of them was an advocate called Adela Hassan. Madam President, distinguished members of the court, it is a privilege to appear on behalf of the Republic of South Africa in this case of exceptional importance. Who basically laid out the case that Israel is breaching the 1948 Genocide Convention, specifically Clause 2. And she said it, it was doing it in four ways. The first genocidal act committed by Israel is the mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza. The second, the serious bodily and mental harm to the Palestinians. The third was the imposing of conditions to make the sustainability of life impossible. And the fourth was uh, an Israeli assault, military assault on Gaza's uh, healthcare system and other means of survival. For many Palestinians, the forced evacuation from their homes is inevitably permanent. Israel has now damaged or destroyed an estimated 355,000 Palestinian homes, leaving at least half a million Palestinians with no home to return to. I mean, those are such extraordinarily serious allegations. The ICJ is one of several UN courts. They all deal with different things. What was this one set up for? What can it do? So this court set up to resolve disputes between states. Now, in this specific case, what South Africa was seeking was an interim decision, what's known as temporary measures. That could come quite quickly. That could come within weeks. But all the court can do is hand down that decision. It can't enforce it. It can't impose it in any way. I mean, we've heard virtually since the start of this war, now more than 100 days ago, that what Israel is doing in Gaza is genocide. That's the allegation. But Legally, what is genocide? What does it take to prove it in court? Genocide is defined in the 1948 Convention, which has been ratified by a whole lot of countries, about 150 or so, including South Africa and including Israel. So they're bound by this. And it defines genocide as an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. And one of the important things in the Genocide Convention is it requires all the signatories to act to prevent genocide, not to stand by, not to solely prosecute it when it's over, but to prevent it. This is basically up there with the most serious crimes that it's possible for an individual or a state to commit. What evidence did South Africa's legal team point to to say that Israel was doing genocide or planning to do genocide in Gaza? It essentially put it in the context of the ongoing dispute between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the ongoing, what it called, oppression of the Palestinian people by Israel. This is a population that Israel had already made vulnerable through, 13, through 16 years of military blockade and crippling de-development. Today, Israel's hindrances to the import of food and essential items have brought Gaza to the brink of famine with adults, mothers, fathers, grandparents regularly foregoing food for the day so that children can eat at least something. The South Africans then talked about the specific acts that Israel has undertaken. Medicine shortages and the lack of medical treatment, clean water and electricity are so great that large numbers of Palestinians are dying or are at imminent risk of dying preventable deaths. 
Cancer and other services have long shut down. Women are undergoing caesarean sections without anaesthetic in barely functioning hospitals, described as scenes from a horror movie. The size of the weaponry used by Israel, for instance, the size of the bombs used, 2,000-pound bombs dropped on neighbourhoods in Gaza. And it says this was not proportionate. This isn't designed to merely kill a few members of Hamas. This is designed to kill large numbers of people and destroy whole neighbourhoods. The phrase they used was Israel has killed an unparalleled and unprecedented number of civilians with a full knowledge of how many civilian lives each bomb will take. On average, 247 Palestinians are being killed and are at risk of being killed each day, many of them literally blown to pieces. They include 48 mothers each day, two every hour, and over 117 children each day, leading UNICEF to call Israel's actions a war on children. The South Africans talked about the destruction of hospitals and other places where people rely on to survive, the lack of humanitarian aid, uh, multiple generations of entire families being killed. As you have heard, but it bears repeating, According to the World Food Programme, four out of five people in the world in famine or a catastrophic type of hunger are in Gaza right now. And Chris, you said that genocide wasn't just doing these acts, but doing them with an intent to destroy. The intent has to be there. How did the South Africans go about trying to prove that part of it, that Israel's doing these things intentionally to destroy the Palestinian people? Yes, intent is a key part of proving this case, proving genocide, and it's in the Genocide Convention. You can't just talk about outcomes. You have to show that, in this case, Israel was intent on the destruction of Palestinian people. And the South Africans said that could be seen in a number of ways. They said the targeting of Palestinians, again, the scale of the weaponry being used that that causes large-scale homicidal destruction, as well as the sniping of civilians, it said. He singled out the designating of safe zones for Palestinians when they were ordered to get out, for instance, from the north of Gaza and seek refuge in the south, and then bombing those areas that they had moved to. Israel's first evacuation order on 13 October required the evacuation of over one million people, including children, the elderly, the wounded, and infirm. Entire hospitals were required to evacuate even newborn babies in intensive care. The order required them to evacuate the north to the south within 24 hours. The order itself was genocidal. And then there was another part that South Africans pointed to, and they said that this was evidence of intent to commit genocide from the very top. There is an extraordinary feature in this case that Israel's political leaders, military commanders, and persons holding official positions have systematically and in explicit terms declared their genocidal intent. They pointed to the words of the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and senior politicians and military people, including his defence minister, Yoav Gallant, uh, the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, and others. The Deputy Speaker of the Knesset, 
Israel's parliament has called for the erasure of the Gaza Strip from the face of the earth. Perhaps the strongest piece of video evidence was Netanyahu's words to the Israeli people in, a, in an address to the nation. And he invokes the Old Testament story in which God commands King Saul to kill everyone in Amalek. The genocidal invocation to Amalek was anything but idle. It was repeated by Mr. Netanyahu in a letter to the Israeli armed forces on 3 November 2023. Madam President, let the Prime Minister's words speak for themselves. That was immediately interpreted by a lot of people who saw it as an encouragement by Netanyahu to go out and kill Palestinians. Um, what the South African lawyer then showed was another video of Israeli soldiers dancing and chanting, we will wipe off the seed of Amalek, suggesting that they'd taken their cue from Netanyahu. There were other statements. If you look at the defence minister, Yoav Gallant, he was quoted telling his troops that there were no restraints and that we will eliminate everything, we will reach all places. On 9 October, the defence minister, Yoav Gallant, gave a situation update to the army where he said that as Israel was imposing a complete siege on Gaza, there would be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything would be closed because Israel is fighting human animals. Is that unusual that in this case, they're not seeking to prove intent by just reading between the lines of what an army has done, but by saying, Look at what the Prime Minister has said. Look at what the President has said. Look at what the Defence Minister has said. Like, is it unusual to be able to read genocidal intent into the words of public figures like this? No, I think it's probably crucial because in the absence of a written order to commit genocide, then you, you have to look to the leadership. I covered the Rwandan genocide and, in fact, very little was written down. Some of that was written down. But some of the strongest evidence at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the UN court, against the leadership were their statements. And those statements were very, very clear about killing Tutsis. And so I think the statements of leadership are very important because people on the ground, whatever the orders may be on paper, whatever the rules of engagement may be on paper, do take their, their cue from the attitude and words of their leaders. People might be thinking, why South Africa? Like, as far as we know, there aren't vast numbers of South African citizens in Gaza under Israeli assault. So why them? Why are they bringing this charge against Israel? Well, that's one of the questions that the Israelis have used to try and smear the South Africans, saying this is anti-Semitism, this is a, a blood libel. Why are the South Africans picking on us when they haven't taken other countries to court but there is a history there between South Africa and Israel, and it's, it's a long and quite complicated history. In short, the people in power in South Africa these days, the African National Congress, have a long alliance from when they themselves were a liberation movement fighting against apartheid. They have a long alliance with the PLO and the Palestinian people. And at the time that the ANC was fighting apartheid, Israel, the government of Israel, was in very close alliance with the white regime in South Africa. They had a very close military alliance and to some degree a political and diplomatic one, but the military was key. And I think that there are very long memories in the ANC about whose side 
Israel was on. And I think there's another factor here is that when South Africans, and they're not alone in this, when South Africans look at what is happening in Israel and particularly in the occupied territories, they see a modern, present form of apartheid. And so they feel this affinity. They feel that they should speak up. So then on Friday, Israel's legal team got their chance to respond to South Africa. What arguments did they make? At the core of Israel's case was that their actions in Gaza are solely in the context of the Hamas attack. Listening to the presentation by the applicant, it was as if Israel is operating in Gaza against no armed adversary, but the same Hamas that carried out the October 7 attacks in Israel is the governing authority in Gaza. And the same Hamas has built a military strategy founded on embedding its assets and operatives in and amongst the civilian population. And they say this is entirely a response to that. It's entirely focused on Hamas and that this is an act of self-defense because every country has the right to defend itself from attack. When a population is ruled by a terrorist organization that cares more about wiping out its neighbor than about protecting its own civilians, there are acute challenges in protecting the civilian population. And the Israelis also cast it as actually this was, this was a, a liberation action for the Palestinians, essentially saying, look, the real threat to the existence of the Palestinian people and to their lives is Hamas. And so by removing Hamas, in essence, they are saving the Palestinian people. In the current conflict, many civilian deaths are directly caused by Hamas. Booby-trapped homes detonate and kill indiscriminately. Mines in alleyways collapse structures around them. And over 2,000 rockets, misfired by Hamas, have landed inside Gaza, causing untold levels of harm. And one of the Israeli lawyers, Galit Ragawan, presented some images to the court showing what she said were Hamas using protected buildings, such as hospitals and schools, as a basis for fighting. Here, you can see projectiles discovered underneath a bed in a child's bedroom. Plus, it was firing from within civilian areas where civilians were present and so endangering them. Here, you can see firing from a UN school. You can see the letters UN on the roof and the fire is circled in red. And Chris, the South Africans argued that it wasn't just the things Israel was doing that constituted genocide, but it was the things that they weren't doing, including taking anywhere near enough care to protect civilians in Gaza. What did the Israeli lawyers say about that? So the Israeli lawyers laid out all the humanitarian measures they claimed to be taking, including the original order for evacuation, which they said was a humanitarian measure. They said they were allowing food and medicine in. Now, one of the things to be noted is, particularly in terms of the aid, that in fact, much of that aid has come more latterly, particularly in October and immediately after the attack. There was very little aid going in and very little help. And they're saying that they give warnings to Palestinians that their attacks are about to come, but the South Africans cast those actually as having genocidal intent. South Africa stated that the IDF gave 24 hours notice to civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate. In fact, the IDF urged civilians to evacuate to southern Gaza for over three weeks before it started its ground operation. And they say these measures are a, a demonstration that we value civilian lives, that we're not trying to kill them. If Israel had such intent, 
Would it delay a ground maneuver for weeks, urging civilians to seek safer space and in doing so, sacrificing operational advantage? Would it invest massive resources to provide civilians details about where to go, when to go, how to go, to leave areas of fighting? Israel's lead lawyer, Malcolm Shaw, he essentially dismissed the South African contention that the statements of Netanyahu and other senior officials were evidence of intent to commit genocide. Since this is such a critical part of South Africa's thesis, permit me to refer to two further statements by the Prime Minister. I start with the most recent, 10th of January. <clears throat> Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza or displacing its civilian population. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population, and we are doing so in full compliance with international law. The IDF is doing its utmost to minimize civilian casualties, but Hamas is doing its utmost to maximize them by using Palestinian civilians as human shields. He specifically picked up on Netanyahu's comment about Amalek about the destruction of men, women, children, and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys, saying, look, the South Africans have misunderstood that. There is no need here for a theological discussion on the meaning of Amalek in Judaism, which was indeed not understood by the applicant. The Israeli council acknowledged that the statements may be troubling and even obscene in their words, but they said they, there weren't any evidence of intent to commit genocide. When the cannons roar in Gaza, the law is not silent. This has been the case since Israel's establishment in 1948, the same year the Genocide Convention was adopted. Israel's commitment to the rule of law has remained steadfast throughout our history. The Israeli lawyers several times invoked the Holocaust on one occasion to say, look, Israel's born out of genocide. We understand our responsibilities. In 1948 too, Israel was at war, forced upon it. Yet, despite being engaged in a war for its survival, the young state gave great importance to immediately establishing an effective, independent and impartial legal system. And the Israelis accused South Africa of giving succor and support to Hamas with this case, saying it's Hamas are the ones that are committing genocide. Which group broke into Israel, killed people because they were Jews, raped women because they were Jews? It's Hamas who not only commits genocide, but makes statements about eradicating Jews and eradicating Israel. Those are statements of genocide. And they said it's obscene that actually this is being thrown back at us. Ultimately, entertaining the applicant's request will not strengthen the commitment to prevent and punish genocide, but weaken it. It will turn an instrument adopted by the international community to prevent horrors of the kind that shock the conscience of humanity during the Holocaust into a weapon in the hands of terrorist groups who have no regard for humanity or for the law. Now, one of the points that the Israeli lawyers tried to make in doing that was to say, well, why has South Africa only taken Israel to court? Why doesn't it take Hamas to court? Well, of course, and the Israeli lawyers will want to know this, it can't take Hamas to this court. The ICJ is a court that decides cases between states. And South Africa has pointed out that 
Hamas should be held to account, but there are other forums for that. The International Criminal Court, for instance, it can't be done inside the ICJ. But Israel's lawyers were very much uh, pushing the idea that South Africa has sided with Hamas, that it's Hamas that's the one that's guilty of genocide, and to accuse Israel of genocide is, in the words of Israel, obscene. It's kind of remarkable after the past few months to see what's happening in Gaza hashed out in a courtroom in this way. How is this case being seen in Israel by senior politicians and in the press? It depends who you talk to. I mean, it's very much been portrayed by the Israeli government as another act of anti-Semitism, as a blood libel is how it was described by the Israeli government when the case was uh, filed. Prime Minister Netanyahu on Thursday, the first day of the hearing, said, today we saw an upside down world. Israel is accused of genocide while it's fighting against genocide. So there's very much a feeling that Israel's being picked on here. Having said that, I've certainly seen amongst some lawyers, uh, human rights groups in Israel are saying, look, the Israeli press needs to examine this and say, do the South Africans have, have a case here? Because there's really only been one message pushed by most of the Israeli press, which is that Israel's being unfairly judged. Could Israel have just ignored this, not showed up to court, just pretended these whole proceedings weren't happening? Israel could have ignored it, and it's ignored the ICJ in the past. There was a case 20 years ago, the Palestinians brought uh, the ICJ against the construction of Israel's vast, what it called a security ban area, and the Palestinians called an apartheid wall through the West Bank. And the ICJ ruled against Israel, said that, in fact, this was not a necessary measure, that it was it was illegal under the Geneva Conventions. Israel didn't even bother to turn up for the case. And when the ruling was handed down, said it belongs in the garbage can of history. I think things have changed, though, in the past 20 years, and there are several things that have changed. Israel is much more worried than it used to be about the role played by international courts. As we said, the ICJ, all it can do is is hand down a ruling and hope that everybody respects it. But the International Criminal Court is a different kettle of fish. It can indict, arrest and sentenced to very long prison terms, life even, uh, people who commit crimes, war crimes, crimes against the Geneva Conventions, crimes against humanity. And the ICC has an ongoing investigation now against the actions of Israel in the occupied territories, as well as one against Hamas and Palestinian armed groups. And the Israelis are worried about this because they've always relied on the Americans in particular to protect them in international forums. The the US vetoes just about every resolution that's critical of Israel in the UN Security Council. But the US doesn't have that sway inside international courts. It's not even a signatory to the ICC. And the ICC investigation comes at a time when, particularly in the developing world, you have countries saying there's a double standard here that the ICC runs around indicting people in in Africa and other parts of the world, but it it lets the major powers off the hook. Why were there no indictments about crimes against humanity in Iraq? And I think this investigation of Israel has become a bit of a test case in the eyes of many countries of the legitimacy of the ICC. Is the ICC really going to hold the powerful to account, particularly against the wishes of the United States and other Western countries? And I think the ICC is conscious of that. So in The context of all of that, I think Israel feels the need to defend itself now in these international courts because 
If the ITJ does find that there's a case of genocide against Israel, although the ICJ can't do anything about it, the ICC could certainly pick that up and make it part of its investigation. Coming up, the judges have heard initial arguments. So what happens next? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Chris, after those two days of hearings on Thursday and Friday, where are we now with this case? The judge is retired to consider whether there's enough of a case for this to go to a full trial. Has South Africa made the case to invoke the Genocide Convention? Has South Africa proved the key thing of intent by Israel? And then if it decides it should go to a full trial, it will decide, will it hand down an order that essentially prevents Israel from continuing this attack on the grounds that it's creating the circumstances of genocide or is genocide. And that could come within weeks. Okay, and this is pretty crucial. Within weeks, this court could say, we think there's a credible case that genocide is happening here and you need to stop this military operation right away. Yes, it could order that. And Israel says, well, that would be astounding if that happened. Israel likened such an order to a court ordering the Allies to stop attacking Germany during World War II because the bombing of German cities was killing large numbers of civilians. But yes, indeed, there could be an interim measure, an order from the court that Israel has to stop the actions that are leading to genocide, which is effectively to say it has to stop its attack on Gaza. Would they have to listen? And what happens if they don't, if they just continue the operation? I would be very surprised if they listened to such an order. It might cause them to try and accelerate what they're doing, wrap it up as quickly as possible. The idea that the order would come down and the next day Israel would say, well, that's okay, we'll just pull out, I would think is very unlikely. And the US and Britain have both said that they're backing Israel in this case. Germany has actually joined the case. In that way, Could they also be exposed here, implicated, if the court makes an interim ruling that there's at least a credible argument that genocide's happening and there needs to be a ceasefire? I think that if the US and other countries, Western countries, were to openly side with Israel defying the ICJ, I think that has implications in other areas. If you look at the war in Ukraine uh, and the attempts by the West to mobilise support in the rest of the world for the Ukrainian position, well, what are those countries going to say now if, if it's seen that, OK, we, we demand adherence to international justice in Ukraine, but we just, you know, ignore it when it suits us 
in Israel and Gaza. So I think they'll be conscious of that. And I think it could be enormously damaging. I think, again, it has implications for the International Criminal Court and its investigation. It will be further erosion, the authority of Western countries to be able to claim a moral lead in diplomatic areas and areas of conflict. And I think particularly it might have knock-on effects in Ukraine. One of the things watching this that struck me was that these proceedings were being broadcast live in the West Bank. And I wonder, what do you think the sight of lawyers in a courtroom adjudicating over what's happening in Gaza, what do you think it all signals to Palestinian people? What does it mean for them? Until the Hamas attack on October 7th, the Palestinians had essentially become invisible in large parts of the world. The Israelis were annexing the West Bank by stealth, taking more and more of the land. There's a, a perpetual sense that Israel is never held to account. One effect of the you know, absolutely dreadful Hamas attack has been to put the Israeli occupation and the treatment of the Palestinians and the, the cry for a Palestinian state back on the agenda. We saw the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, talking about the need for a Palestinian state. We've seen the British government talk about the need for a Palestinian state. None of this was being talked about just a few months ago. And I think that these legal actions will also be part of building, in the Palestinian mind, momentum towards getting back to proper negotiations toward a Palestinian state. And I think Palestinians will look at the case as far away as it is and say, well, here... It is being recognised and being recognised by a country that has moral authority, South Africa, a country that's governed by the people who fought against apartheid. And I think they will feel that it gives them some legitimacy that had perhaps been diminished on the international stage. Chris McGreal, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Chris McGreal, who writes for Guardian US. Our coverage of the ongoing war in Gaza is at theguardian.com. Our live blog there has all the latest every day. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Hannah Moore. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury. The executive producers were Phil Maynard and Homer Khalili. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.